This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. So this is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast together with my colleague and co-organizer of the BCBT Summer School, Tony Prescott. And we're talking with Marco Diana, who is uh, one of the speakers in our in our school this year. And Marco, you, you spoke on the induction of a hypodopaminergic response through transcranial magnetic stimulation. So the question is, um, how did you end up linking, if you want, transcranial magnetic stimulation um, in the treatment of, of addiction? Right? So what was the trajectory that kept you there? Okay, let me let me make this thing straight first. The hypodopaminergic state um, contents or the hypodopaminergic hypothesis contends that the, the chronic use of drugs, several drugs, different drugs, alcohol, cocaine, opiates, psychostimulants in general, will produce a hypodopaminergic state. From here, you can uh, give a reason or a possible reason to um, justify all the changes that you observe in a drug addict. Or not all the changes, but at least some change. As we all know, dopamine works in movement, is important in movement, is important in reward, is important in motivation, is important in a number of functions. The transcranial magnetic stimulation in principle may offer the cue by stimulating the prefrontal cortex. You can take advantage or you can exploit if you will, a well-demonstrated anatomical pathway which goes from the prefrontal cortex monosynaptically to the ventral tegmental area and this neuron will impinge upon a dopamine neuron which in turn will project to the limbic areas. So if I apply transcranial magnetic stimulation in a stimulatory pattern, I should, in principle, potentiate a system that has been functioning less due to the chronic use of drugs. Mm -hmm. In fact, this has already been shown in healthy individuals. If you do apply TMS to the prefrontal cortex, you get an increase in dopamine release as shown by PET studies uh, by Antonio Strafella, essentially, and others. Right, so, yes. so, that, so that's where you are today. But in some sense, we first have to inspect what is really the brain of an addict, right? How is the brain of an addict different from exactly. the healthy brain? So, and you very much emphasize then the role of dopamine. In, exactly. And dopamine reconfiguration. Exactly. So, so how should we think of the brain of an addict? There is another area that we did not emphasize today, but that requires and needs to be remembered. This is the prefrontal cortex. It has been shown by others, by the visual imagers, for instance, that the cortical uh, the cortical mantle at various levels of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex works less. I'm using very simple terms simply to be understood. Um, for instance, Nora Volkov and Rita Goldstein uh, 
they think that the lack of function of the reduction of function in the specific orbital frontal cortex is then responsible for the impulsivity that characterizes the behavior of the addict. One of the key features of addiction is craving. Craving for the drug. It simply cannot resist. And so many uh, indications and many reports suggest that this is due to a malfunctioning of the prefrontal cortex. Specifically, in their idea, is the orbital frontal cortex. Other people think about the cingulate cortex. Some more think about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, also because in cortex there is a small problem. To identify the cortex does essentially always the same things. Cognitive integration, decision-making, working memory, and several others. But it's very difficult to find the borders between prelimbic cortex, cingulate cortex, uh, orbital frontal, dorsolateral, dorsomedial, ventrolateral. There are no a priori boundaries. And when we apply a stimulus like the TMS, it's very difficult to contain that stimulus only to the prelimbic cortex and not touching the infralimbic cortex, and so on and so forth. So the agreement exists on the frontal lobe of the brain, which is not working properly, and in many senses is unable to keep down pulsions. So it's unable to, to, to avoid dangerous behaviors. Let's so the that that definition for you, addiction is also a, a pathology of executive control. Absolutely. So Absolutely. It, it's not only, an, let's say, as we'll see also later, an excessive manipulation of a, of a reward system. No, 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 absolutely not. But do you see that as an independent process or that is dependent on, again, what happens to I think the reward the, system? I think the key is, suddenly the reward system is damaged. Let's put it that way. And suddenly the reward system responds immediately as the chronic treatment goes on, at the onset. The cognitive part will come into play later on, will not, does not have the, t the same time scale, the cognitive part, as the, the emotional part. Emotions begin initially, take drugs, dopamine goes up, is happy, honeymoon. Then slowly the system adapts and the second system, the cognitive systems, mostly the cortex, will become involved. In other words, in spite of the fact that you are taking drugs from time zero, at time one, the limbic system is intervening in modifying your behavior. But at time 10, the cognition will come into play. The cognition means also that the, that the addict becomes aware of the fact that he is an addict. He is an addict. It means he is a patient. He needs help. He needs somebody to rely on to come out from a situation that has slipped through his fingers, to put it in this romantic Right. Way. Mm -hmm. <coughs> can, can we know for sure that the people that uh, become addicted to substances um, are not are already predisposed in some way towards addiction, so that uh, other yeah. people, maybe given the same introduction to these substances, might not become addicted, but these people may already have some. Uh, aspect of frontal cortex dopamine function which predisposes them towards this? 
Now, there are studies, of course, which have indicated that there is a component, a genetic component, which will favor the emergence of the full-blown phenomenon. Right. It is a multifactorial yeah. disease, if you wish. Um, I remember that a paper in Science by Pierre V. Piazza and his co-workers uh, found that roughly of 100 people that will take drug drugs, roughly 17-18% will become addicts. Taking a drug does not mean to become an addict. The, the diagnosis is, I mean, it's very clear, the DSM-5 will tell you exactly that you need to take drugs, you need to take continuously, you take, you need to uh, make attempts to stop. You know that you're doing bad to yourself, so you try to make attempts. And these attempts to quit, they fail. Okay? Another very important point is the fact that at one point, the drug is interfering with your life. It's not anymore a matter of um, physical, biological problems. It's a matter of interference with your normal social life, which means working life, which means familiar life, which means social life, and many other things. So, of 100 people that will take a drug, roughly a fifth will become real addicts. So, so now to bring that back to what you discussed earlier about prefrontal cortex. Um, so, on the one there's this idea, and then we can also expand that later, that drug use, whether it's morphine or opioids or, or alcohol, um, is targeting the dopamine system and lead and, and leads to a dysregulation. It's one of the right? targets. Exactly. One. Exactly. Absolutely. No. So the, that's not the debate yet, right? But now, now I could argue. Well, but since dopamine is changing, the targets of the dopamine system, including prefrontal cortex, yes. is also changing its responses. Exactly. So the long-term changes are in the end a knock-on effect of manipulations of the neuromodulatory system. With an alternative interpretation to say, and that's a bit, I think, the direction you, you were going, I have different functional subsystems. And these functional subsystems all have their own regulatory role in the control of behavior. And you might have, let's say, a limbic system dealing with issues of satisfaction of immediate needs and craving it, that it tries to resolve in some ways. And, but when that remains unresolved, I have to start to, to, to use, let's say, cognitive resource. To resolve that problem, and that's how I start to engage my executive control system, the exactly. cortex. So, so which of these two causal pathways do you see as being dominant in the development of, of addiction? No, I don't see any one of those dominant. Probably, if you stick a gun on my head and tell, tell me only one, I will tell you about the cortex, mm -hmm. because uh, another another problem with the addict. Take out the gun, Tony. <laughs> Another problem with the addict is he's a very difficult patient. All patients, they recognize their status as a patient. If I feel pain on my shoulder, I will come to you and I will tell you, I feel pain. Tell me what to do, what I have or what I should do to fix it. The addict does not recognize that he's a patient. And that brings, it is, it elongates his pathology. Mm -hmm. he, make, he has to make efforts 
to realize that it needs treatment and seeks treatment. So, so that's a form of anosognosia, or is it characterized differently? <clears throat> uh, I don't know. I don't know, I mean, but I would say that this is a cortical problem. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that this is a dopamine-related problem. Okay. This is a but problem is it, is of it? cognition. Okay. It self-awareness. Mm -hmm. What what am I? Am I an addict and does the patient? Or I am simply a person having fun mm -hmm. with cocaine and I'm rich enough mm -hmm. and I don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, 3,000 euros every Friday mm -hmm. is nothing. Right. So, with that, so would, you then, would the distinction be that the addict is actually suffering from pathology that also deforms the self, while in other cases the patient, as a, as a reference of, okay, in the past the self had the following characteristics, and today it has these characteristics, like I have pain in my shoulder, and this difference is now my particular symptom. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's very difficult. I, I am not used to reasoning these terms, but certainly I would say that the self is affected. Mm -hmm. right. The self pre-drug is a different thing than the self post-drugs right. or during drugs. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, the possibility exists then that the people that are taking a significant amount of these drugs on a regular basis, but not experiencing the same impact on these brain circuits. Uh, so they're therefore able to you know, continue to live their life more or less, and uh, to take and leave the substance more effectively than somebody who's addicted. So they're not meeting the criteria. I mean, do you, in your studies, do you use control groups who are Cocaine users, but are not, or alcohol users who are not uh, recognized as addicts. Not yet. Yeah. My experience with humans, in spite of the fact that my degrees in medicine, yeah. I never did clinical work. I always did the Robert's work on right. yeah, physiology. Yeah. So it, it is simply by seven, eight years ago that I begun and uh, uh, with these human studies and uh, another thing is the point that we touched briefly this morning is not easy yeah and recruitment patient recruitment is not an easy task and it's very time and effort consuming and uh, yeah. frequently frustrating so to find a group like that you were saying it will take months and months yeah, of absolutely. work. So, but it's it, it before we kind of conclude that, that the differences we're seeing in the brains of people with addictions from those of the controls who are not drug users, um, it's possible that some of those differences may predate their addiction and that they may already have a predisposition yes. or a yes. genetic. Uh, Something, something about their personality yes, which is. is reflected in some of these findings. I, I think that a portion is only in that way. Mm. I, I think that there are several factors that contribute to the, to the full-blown syndrome. In some case, maybe uh, that is predisposed. Yeah. In some other case, even if it's not predisposed, but it comes across the drug situations and things you may become addict even if you were not. Yeah. So there is not a single thing that you can identify and say, okay, I know why you are getting addicted. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, so now we have a bit of an idea of, of the, the sort of the phenomenon that we're looking at of addiction, right? Yes. And, all, and it's different, let's say, medical, psychological, and also biological aspects. Yes. But now in your research, you have dissected that down to a set of very specific questions, right? Yes. A along um, what are the changes to the dopaminergic system and its targets? Yes. Right? This has really become, uh, over many years, the main research trajectory that you have followed, which I think is also very much representative for, for, for the field, if I'm 
And this is very much one of the targets that people look at, right? <laughs> um, so the, in the first of experiments, you, you, you looked at, at, let's say, what's the effect of, of drug use and of withdrawal of drugs yeah. on, on the response of the dopaminergic cells. Exactly. And, and you, you report actually rather, and also that's confirmed by other experiments, rather dramatic, a rather dramatic impact on also the baseline activity of these, of these neurons, right? So that would mean users of actually different types of drugs yeah. that in some sense might even be not that related, right? It can be alcohol or cannabis or opioids, yes. right? In all cases, you see a reduction in the, in the baseline. Tonic activity, yes. So, so how do you explain that? Where does that come from? Why is the tonic activity well, reduced? Well, a very simple uh, uh, way of providing a possible explanation uh, relates to the acute effect of the drug. All drugs of abuse, they do increase the activity of the dopamine system. Once you take them chronically, there are various neuroplastic effects that take place over time. Tolerance, sensitization, reverse tolerance, there are several. In brief, what is happening is that the system, the dopamine system, is adapting to the new situation in which in the environment there is always a molecule that stimulates its activity. So when you take out this thing, the, the, the dopamine system becomes orphan. Actually, the drug may work as a constant pusher of the system. You take out the drug and the system has adapted to a lower level to compensate for the exogenous drug that is mm -hmm. demanding an increase in activity. Dopamine neurons are also neuron, neurons that are very energy demanding. Mm -hmm. So to make a dopamine neuron firing is more costly in terms of energies. Why is that? I don't know. Paul Bolam mm -hmm. has okay. done these studies. Mm -hmm. He's an excellent, as you know, yeah. neuroanatomist. They are very branchy neurons, mm -hmm. they have a huge mm -hmm. number of mm -hmm. um, okay, so the baseline, laterals, right. and, uh, mm -hmm. but I remember that the conclusion was that it's from an, ener an energetic mm -hmm. standpoint, okay. to keep it going, you require mm -hmm. a lot of fuel. Right. But it means at the first <laughs> stage of the process, you essentially described this as some homeostatic system, right? It's self-regulatory. Now I'm, I'm in some sense overwriting an intrinsic drive of the system yeah. with an external cue, which is a drug, exactly. right? I'm overdriving the system, so it starts to downregulate. So the system goes down cure, right? to accommodate for the drug, right. and if now you take the drug, it mm -hmm. goes sure. to a lower level. Okay, and those mean if you then are not exposed to the drug long enough, you should sort of bounce back to this initial baseline. Is that true? Yes. Okay, so it's like a self-regulatory system, exactly. and the drug now sort of co-ops that system and it readjusts. Exactly. Okay. Co right. So are we, are we optimistic then that, that, that you can make a full recovery, or do you have some long-term? <laughs> With TMS, you mean? Or no, I mean, no, no. generally, if you were to stop the drug, and, uh, if you stop the drug at the very first period, it is a painful period, yeah. and we know that. We know it for each single drug. Yeah, it but is you, different. But it's uh, over six months, say, are you back to normal? Are you indistinguishable from a control? Okay, a, a, this is almost a joke, right. but it is said that the diagnosis of a fully recovered addict, you make it only when he dies. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like a schizophrenic. Yeah. You know. he, he had fully recovered. Now he's dead, so I, this is almost mm -hmm. a joke, but to tell you, uh, it tells you how difficult it is. So, so the answer is... You no. can say, this guy is 10 years mm -hmm. that he's not taking cocaine anymore. Yeah. 
But Marco, there's something though, physiologically, electrophysiologically, do the neurons you measure from return to exactly the same baseline level? Or do they go back to a somewhat different baseline level? That means as if there's a memory in the system, right? Uh, for the last question, I would say that there is a memory in the system. Mm -hmm. There is a cellular memory as, a, as in every uh, cell. But mm -hmm. <laughs> this is my conviction. Right. That's, uh, there is only a memory. Uh, let me go back to the first part and mm -hmm. it escapes me. It escapes me now. No, no, so I'm I starting to unpack the whole addiction uh, um, syndrome by really now zooming in on this dopamine. Oh, yeah, the oh, if it goes right? back to the, no, to the to free the drug level, yeah. yes, it will go back. And we have examples, and we discussed this this mm -hmm. morning at the lecture. Opiates, you have an opiate dependent individual. Fighting rate goes down, dopamine release goes down, TH goes down, everything goes down. Then eventually it will come to normal level, pre-drug level, in two weeks. Remember that we are talking about rodents, that the time scale is different. So, but in rodents, in rats, in two weeks, more or less, you have a system that is up apparently working as it used to and we did this paper we did publish the paper if you do administer morphine now to an opiate dependent individual the reaction to morphine will be magnified enormously as compared to the first shot of morphine in a let's say undrugged individually in spite of the fact that they have the same basic firing rate so this experiment tells you some more yes is going back the mechanisms that sustain the spontaneous firing rate but but perhaps not every mechanism has gone back to normality mm -hmm. it is known for instance that when they recover one of the things that comes back to normal later than others is the sleep-wake cycle. They don't sleep well. Although they may be eight months without taking drugs, and they have fixed uh, the diarrhea, the, the, the sympathetic uh, imbalances, the various things, uh, pain, uh, kicking the monkey, and all that kind of things, in spite of that, still they don't sleep well. So, so every sign and symptom, they have their own time course. Right. Okay. So it also indicates that you already indicate, or no, maybe not, <coughs> we have to look also beyond dominant systems. Right? Exactly. We have to look at global changes. Beyond. But so, what was it? What happened next? So now we see we have a huge impact on the baseline firing of the dopaminergic system. And then you showed, um, in also very great anatomical detail, that, that that in turn has a huge impact on the targets of these dopaminergic cells. Yes. Right? That, yeah. that immediately the, the spine density along the targets of these dopaminergic cells, and you, you looked at in, in accumbents, so we're ventral striatum, but supposedly it would happen on any cell that's targeted by the dopamine that's series, right. right? Yes. So, so the dynamics, the dynamics of this, um, these changes. So if, if I lose all my spines, it also means I'm losing my synapses. Yes. Right? So, so is there any specific pattern to that, or is it a very non-specific effect? We didn't find it yet. But because that would mean that essentially it's a massive disconnection suddenly. There's a dramatic disconnection in the nervous system. Yes, yes. Is that how and you I interpret it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. In different words, I express the same thing. You are expressing it in very nice words. There is a massive disconnection. Mm -hmm. So, if you would have to guesstimate, so if Tony pulls out the gun again, yeah. if you'd have to guesstimate how much of the, the circuit of the brain mm -hmm. is disconnecting as a result of this. 
Just just rough guess. Rough guess. Would you think like 1% or is it like 40% or is it even um, higher than that? Well, I don't know, but from, between 1% uh, is more. No. It's more than 1%. It's 40%. Mm. Then if you say it's 40 or 80%, I would probably say 40. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, it's difficult to put these things in numbers. No, but, but the key but thing But the disconnection, here, believe me, the behavior changes. Right. The well, behavior that's the point, changes. Right? The, the best way to have a description, but not a scientific, strictly scientific description, is to ask a mother. Ask a mother that has a child that is taking drugs she would tell you, this is not my son anymore. Mm -hmm. The whole behavior changes. It's affected the relationships with loved and unloved, sleep-wake cycle, feeding, everything changes. Mm -hmm. Everything changes. Right. More or less, it's like if someone would be interested in uh, opiate addiction, I would never suggest him to read one of my papers, but I would suggest to read Confessions of an Opium Eater mm -hmm. by Thomas McKinsey. Right, exactly. Or if you want to study memory, you don't read Rob, Rob Malenka, but you need first uh, to read the, the French guy. What's his name? Now escapes me. Mm -hmm. the, La Recherche. Alombra de la Fanchula, Proust, Marcel Proust, Madeleine, the Biscuit, you get the idea of what memory is. Right. So, 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 so we have a disconnection syndrome, it's interesting, right? Because in some, Alzheimer's disease is also described as a disconnection syndrome. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the symptomatology, would you, would you see an overlap between addicts, chronic addicts and an Alzheimer patient? Like you have the hyper-emotionality, you have uh, a lack of, of cognitive control. Mm. Are these overlaps explored? Some or this is like this wacky, wacky. I never thought about that. I thought about uh, the parallel between uh, psychostimulants, abuser, abusers, and schizophrenics, mm -hmm. for instance. I thought about uh, cocaine addicts, and you see it. It's and paranoics. Never thought about Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. His capabilities are not deranged. He knows how to solve a problem. He can do an abstract thinking. He can solve a puzzle. Actually, he solves puzzles every day because he doesn't have money and his problem every day is to get money, yeah. to get high and then to get money again. And these are big <laughs> puzzles when you don't have money. So they steal, they do strange things, but their capacity to reason is not touched. Mm -hmm. But not totally. Or at yeah. least in some part. I mean, uh, uh, the, um, one of the, uh, that we've just mentioned, one of the knock-on effects is uh, on the D2 receptors in the striatum that you uh, discussed at, at length. So just to be clear about what the uh, effect is, um, so what happens is that the, uh, the, the, the overstimulation of the dopamine neurons by the drug is flooding the, the striatum with dopamine and that's causing a reduction in the D2 receptors, is that correct? Well, I, I don't know if there is a causal role. Okay. I don't know if the dopamine receptors are uh, decreasing in number because there is a lot of dopamine or by an independent mechanism, which goes in parallel. Right. It could also be a neuroadaptive mechanism, as you are... Yeah. More or less suggesting lots of dopamine. Let's get yeah. down with this. It could be. But these are possibilities. Uh, plus, they are very uh, academic possibilities. In the sense that if you are looking for a therapy, 
why is that? Or there is another reason. What I have to do is to fix that number and take it back up as it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if it is a, you know, an adaptation, then you would hope that the uh, that would again correct once you take out the excess dopamine. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if the dopamine cells go back to firing at the normal levels, then you would hope the D two receptors would also recover to their you know pre addiction levels. So yes. Um, but we don't know that's still an open question. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Would you would you expect any kind of specificity with respect to the different receptor types? Do you think it's a very non-specific effect? Within the dopamine system? Yeah. Non-specific. Okay. Although there is a, some consistent literature, for instance, in rodents that uh, tends to uh, to give to the D1 receptor a relatively major importance in rodents. In humans, so far cannot be studied because there is no label. Mm -hmm. Right. There is no radio like by Richard Morris, it, and uh, we did it ourselves also. And, the mechanism in the population of the, the medial spiny neurons can roughly be divided into two categories. One, that is the medial spiny neuron that projects back to the substantia nigra parse reticulata. And these neurons, they do contain predominantly D1 receptors. Then there is another population which projects to the pallidus and then comes back. Okay, these are called the direct and indirect mm -hmm. pathways. Virtually every study will tend to, to bring in the direct pathway. So you can block with a CH, which is the dopamine antagonist, and we did, as I was describing this morning, if you give a dopa <coughs> to rats, you will have the spines growing back, you will have again your LTD mechanisms, and you will have also memory, uh, the rodents performing well in emotional memory tasks. Mm -hmm. This can be blocked by SEH, but not by superide, which is the 2 antagonist. And this is really invoking a D1 mechanism mm -hmm. but this is all okay. okay but if there's a differential effect on the direct and indirect pathway then this again would imply that there's a modulation of executive control systems right because yes they, they, they will depend on these pathways again yeah. for the kind of competition that plays out this cortical level yeah but now so when we move from rats to humans because this is in the end what, what, what you looked at um, there, there was fruit. So, what, what made you believe that, that, that the transcranial stimulation could actually help you to resolve the addiction problem? What, was the, what are the pieces of the puzzle that gave you confidence that this even made sense to do? To resolve the puzzle is certainly an overstatement. We won't resolve the puzzle. The transcranial magnetic stimulation has two main advantages. The very first one is its physiological nature. You are using a stimulator. Let's forget a moment about electromagnetism and these uh, things that are very confusing for some people. You are stimulating the cortex. You are able to modulate cellular activity in the cortical layers. This aspect has to be contrasted with what you have available in the field today. For cocaine, zero. There is nothing. There is not a single molecule why you have 
in, in opium addict, he would say, okay, there is nothing else to do. Take methadone, okay? You are, you are tobacco dependent. Here is phadenicline, nicotine patches, gums. You have several uh, therapeutic approaches. For cocaine and psychostimulants, there is nothing. So this is the first part. The second part, uh, uh, we spoke about this also this morning. The second part is this lack of possibility, of therapeutic possibility, pushes the psychiatrist to find something to give to this guy. And the standard things are antidepressants. Oh, he's taking cocaine because he's mm. depressed. It's obvious, mm -hmm. you know? Antidepressant, anxiolytics, and mood stabilizers. Now, as a pharmacologist, I am fully aware that while we do know the pharmacology of antidepressants, we know much. We know much about anxiolytics and problems and toxicology of this and that. And we also know about the pharmacology of the mood stabilizers, whatever that means, because we don't know nothing about the pharmacology of these three molecules in a 50 years old individual, which is risking heart attacks, which takes blood... Uh, lowering uh, blood, pressure. blood pressure pills, and eventually even other things. So this combination of factors, compared with the TMS, tells me, go ahead with TMS. At the very worst, you won't do anything, mm -hmm. but at least you won't do damage. Right. While the drugs, they do damage. Mm -hmm. Well, you're having a very localized effect with the TMS. Whereas you're yes. rather than the systemic effect, which has got to be exactly. positive as well. Exactly. But I mean, uh, what's interesting about the TMS effect is that, as you said, you you can't specifically localize one area of cortex. So you could be rewiring some of the associations that we yeah. have in the frontal areas, uh, and that could be a positive thing, and that you're maybe unlearning this link between dopamine release and alcohol or cocaine, and you may be learning something about dopamine release and TMS, but you know, that's, uh, it, it's maybe a better association to have. So that this, this thing, when you see alcohol and you have to drink it, or you see cocaine, you have to have it. Unlearning that would be really powerful. Exactly. And perhaps that's one of the benefits of this treatment. Exactly, this is also possible. We are yeah. speculating if yeah, yeah. we are allowed to speculate. We are in these interviews. We can. Exactly. <laughs> What's that? We can't hear. We can speculate. Uh, <laughs> That's why we're here, yeah, actually. Yeah. The TMS, there are studies, for instance, which are showing that TMS in certain cases and in certain areas of the brain are inducing connectivity strengthening. It's called. So with those methods that visual imagers do now, tractography and all these kind of things, they are able to tell you that after a stimulus, you have this, this bundle is thicker, thinner, and things like that. And these things are emerging. They also appear to be frequency dependent. So you can increase or decrease or modulate not only transmitters, but the real structure of the neuron, okay? There are also other reports in the memory field which indicate that the TMS is able to modulate dendritic spines, the number, the shape, in vitro, in vivo, once again, these are not things that are established yeah. and well established, but they let you speculate. Well, there are two things going on. One is, as you say, a direct effect that TMS could have yeah. on uh, the sort of wiring of the brain, 
maybe the learning effect. There's also the effect that the releasing the dopamine has, because of course dopamine is a very powerful learning signal. Exactly. So during the TMS episode, the dopamine release is stimulating you to, to learn something, exactly. which is possibly to have positive associations exactly. around TMS if, exactly. it's, if it's the dopamine release experience is pleasurable. Yeah. But, yeah. But, the, but this is also the weakness of the method, right? Well, this because is the risk of it, yeah. yeah. So isn't it really of, of, of great um, priority to, to find also a way to contextualize the stimulation, that, that you really allow this brain to reconfigure in a way that is, is less risky. So if you do yeah. a TMS uh, a stimulation, you know you're gonna drive dopamine, you're gonna drive all sorts of associative learning processes. So maybe it's important that it happens in a context that is like a healthy, normal life. Yeah. So have you have you considered that? Have you included these aspects? Okay. Because now no, you are no, conditioning, yeah. and so you are conditioning people we to really love people. to love the yes. TMS device, right? And uh, again, we are looking at all these things, and uh, I appreciate very much this very stimulating talk because it gives you more ideas. The incumbent problem you have always, every day, with each one of these guys is, are you taking cocaine or not? Mm -hmm. If he's taking cocaine, uh, you see, with those that are not taking cocaine, then you can go deeper in the conversation and ask those questions we were saying, but so tell me about cocaine now, here. You see, this is cocaine, what do you think? How do you feel? It, but only a portion. But our target mm -hmm. is to lower the drug intake. Of course. Uh, so one thing I you consider... I think that they will come with time. Well, there are interesting approaches that look much more at the associative processes, right? They try to dissociate um, the drug associated stimuli from the addiction. So you have simple conditioning paradigms, so behavioral therapy paradigms, where you try to dissociate alcoholics from beer bottles and wine bottles. And this is what we so, do. Right? This and, is what we do. Okay, and in, in, in your case, you can do something similar, right? Mm -hmm. that, that you, because exactly. now it's not about dissociating, it's about forming new associations. So you can exactly. immerse, project people into a, a context that is supposedly the healthy living context exactly. in, within which they are getting them conditioned without seeing the TMS device. So that would suggest that you have to go to things like virtual reality to do that. This is another thing that is next mm -hmm. to be investigated. Very good. That would be very good. <laughs> so we look. So so okay. So so you found a way to 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 to, to reactivate this 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 under uh, act activated dopamine system. Through that, you're able to reactivate the targets of the dopamine system. You allow the circuit to rebuild, yeah. right? And and in some sense, yeah. also one of your most recent papers. You also showed that it led to reduced cocaine intake. Yeah. Correct, no? Correct. Would this just generalize without further adaptation to any other addiction? Like, can we go for alcoholics, do the only same thing? Only in theory. Only in theory. Would you believe it could? It could, but I'm also aware that drugs are not the same. Although the, all of them they do increase the dopamine transmission and they do decrease dopamine transmission after withdrawal. There are drugs that are more difficult to, to drop. Like? Like nicotine, for instance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like which nicotine. one? So you think cocaine is actually one of the easier targets? I would say. Okay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I would say that. Are there drugs that you think are completely beyond this method? No, I'm not a pessimistic individual. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's good. But then, so so now we're going to open up a little bit, right? So we we already indicated and discussed that this is very much dopamine centric, right? We, Absolutely, I so, admit that. No, and that's fine, right? Because and so yeah, you, you need controllability, so we have to start to reduce complexity, and then you came a long way. It's fantastic that you see that a non-invasive method can actually have impact on drug intake. It's yeah. incredible, right? But um, what other systems would be on your wish list to start to include now in an understanding and also intervention for uh, drug addiction, or to counteract drug addiction? 
what we are trying to do is still very difficult, very time consuming. We are trying to do mainly two things. One is to couple these studies with the functional magnetic resonance. Mm -hmm. Before, after drugs, uh, Q-inducing, there are many things. In the wish list, you are asking me my wish list. Mm -hmm. huh? So this is the dream book, mm -hmm. we call it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> The other thing are the protocols. We would like to investigate better, like Tetabarst, to see if beyond the obvious advantage, the practical advantage, that while one of these treatments with 10 Hz will cost you 27 minutes, Tetabarst will cost you 3 minutes. Beyond this, if it has a, a different effect on the drug intake, first of all, and eventually in all those cognitive functions that can be measured, or measured is a strong word, estimated through the tools we have, uh, Tower of London, and mm -hmm. Iowa Gambling, uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. okay. In the wish list. Mm -hmm. Right. I hope that God will keep me going in a life. <laughs> but then now with the current team TMS protocol on the on the cocaine users, how much of a reduction can you accomplish? Right? It's, it's not that they go okay. to zero. Uh, I mean, so what's the modulation you get? Okay, we have first of all we have uh, seventy 65, 70% people that they do stop in the first month, mm -hmm. okay? This is more or less the success rate. We don't have data other than those published in the long range, and this is the most important part. Yeah, exactly. The six, mm -hmm. the, no, even six, nine, 12 months, mm -hmm. nine, 12. The relapse rate in our case is around 70%, and normal addiction treatment service is around 98, mm -hmm. 99. So, better than nothing. No, it, it, it's, it's a substantial yeah. impact, right? Substantial, right. yeah. Tony. Yeah, the, um, uh, we'll be talking about uh, the sort of broader implications and uses of TMS. So there is evidence that uh, uh, nicotine uh, and even cigarette smoking can lower risk of Parkinson's disease. So um, I don't know what the mechanism of that perhaps you do, and, and that involves stimulation of dopamine cells. So is there possible therapeutic benefit in Parkinson's for the TMS? In Parkinson has been tried and is being tried for several things, but not for the progression of the disease. So you try to reduce tremors, uh, you try to uh, reduce other aspects of the syndrome. Yeah. The people in general believe that Parkinson is a lack of dopamine, and so it gets cured by administering L-DOPA. Unfortunately, this is yeah. not the case. But, but what do we know about the mechanism through which nicotine may have a, a protective effect? Well, nicotine pushes dopamine neurons. Yes. So, so it could be, could easily be. Yeah. On dopamine neurons, you have uh, nicotinic receptors. So when you take a puff, yeah. it will go here and the dopamine neuron will fire more. If you consider that you observe clinically Parkinson's, when the number of cells has fell 60% or yeah. something, nicotine can help to push those neurons to make you moving. But this is a very, how can I say? But it's, it's more, I think, of the, the evidence is that it, it's preventative, so people are less likely to... Prevents? Prevent. So people are, are low risk of Parkinson's. That, 
Smokehouse? Yes. I don't know. Yeah, the most acclaimed. I don't know. Mm-hmm. No. Right. No. Um, but so, what other neurotransmitters would you put into the mix? It, if, I told if, you, CRF. Okay, so C- CRF. releasing factor. Okay. Uh, CRF uh, has uh, a behavior that is just uh, the mirror image of dopamine. <laughs> dopamine goes up, CRF goes down, and recently the people at Scripps, Olivier George, uh, and, uh, George Kube, uh, and his group, and even Druscolo, a number of people, they are a very big and prominent group in the field, they found, in spite of the fact that George Kube is an anti-dopamine guy in general, but very nice, um, they found the link between CRF and dopamine neurons. Mm-hmm. They did studies in rodents and humans post-mortem, and they combined a nice and steadily standing story. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a, the new frontier. Ah, uh, in pharmacology, yes. Okay. I prefer to think that TMS is mm-hmm. the new frontier. Okay, but now you also made quite a strong statement about the whole opioid epidemic, right? That we're facing now, especially in the U.S. Right? It will come here too. Are you sure about that? Or is it, we already seen it happen? I would love to be wrong. Okay, yeah, of course, <laughs> I understand. I but, would love to be wrong, but. I fear there will be, mm-hmm. because literally, uh, in that case, there is a portion of medical malpractice first. Mm-hmm. In, the U- in the US, they are very easy going with opioids. Mm-hmm. So you find over-the-counter pills for sore throat with codeine, Codeine is an opioid, is an anti-tussive drug is employed mm-hmm. as anti-coughing drug. Mm-hmm. But an addict immediately understands that instead of taking one pill, it will take five pills and it will get high. Mm-hmm. So this is one problem. The other problem is uh, it's not codeine, nor is, uh, I mean, it's heroin for that matter, but are the fentanyl derivatives. The smugglers, I don't know, we go now into the, the, the chronicles of drug barons and uh, Escobar and mm-hmm. Chapo, mm-hmm. I don't know if you follow, but the Mexican, to make it very brief, the Mexicans used to be the mules of the cocaine that was coming from Colombia heading the United States. The Mexicans are not anymore that, are not anymore the mules. They are the directors of all operations. And they discovered that uh, illicit labs can make amphetamines, methamphetamines, MDMA, and fentanyl derivatives. So the U.S. have been invaded by these very cheap, powerful drugs. And many people that get refused by the physician, they go to the street and with $5 they buy it. Mm-hmm. a shot of fentanyl right. and he dies because the drug is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. But do you, uh, how do you see the role of, let's say, the, the pharmaceutical industry in that and the standard medical practice in the U.S.? Because in some because sense... they push you. So they push the physician to administer it. Mm-hmm. They do what they do everywhere. I mean, I don't want to talk badly about the companies because uh, but I know for a fact <laughs> this is a true thing. Mm-hmm. So you, you think those are market, just commercial market forces at work driving this epidemic? Uh, contributing. Certainly not putting obstacles. Mm-hmm. Right. Certainly not putting obstacles. I would never dream of accusing uh, Big Pharma of 
triggering this thing, but certainly they don't do nothing against it, and we know that they do anything to sell their compounds. Mm -hmm. right. An opiate cannot be sold over the counter, to make it brief. But in Italy is not sold. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is sold in Spain, and I don't think it is sold in Europe, throughout mm -hmm. Europe, you know. Mm -hmm. But now, do you believe, so earlier we talked about cocaine and other drugs of abuse, where you said it was something like, if you have 100 users, maybe 20 get addicted, something like this, right? Or was it exactly. Morally. Is it fentanyl? Would fentanyl number be higher? Or it would still be the I same? don't think it will be higher. You will get more deaths. Oh, absolutely. Because they, they know this thing already happened in the 80s. There was a thing called China White in California, and there were numberless deaths in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Oh, gee, this must be an opioid overdose. The guy at the needle here, it was cyanotic blue, and so depression, respiratory depression. They went to see if there were morphine metabolites, and morphine could not be found. After some time, they found fentanyl. Which what is them? Ah. Yes, oh, China White mm -hmm. was the name, the street name of the drug. It was composed by uh, fentanyl and meperidine, which, in, which is an opioid that has mostly peripheral actions. Mm -hmm. So the addict, the, the addict feels that, and he perceives the action, the peripheral actions. And they were selling this as if it was heroin. They don't say this is fentanyl. Mm -hmm. This is very good. Give me ten dollars. Be careful, eh? mm -hmm. be careful, because this is very good. So somebody was not careful, and many people died. It is occurring the same, exactly the same thing. The use spreads, and many more people will die. Mm -hmm. Okay. 62,000 is not bad as a number, unfortunately. No, that's scary. Yeah, that's really scary. So, so Marco, uh, we're close to the finish line. Okay. And um, so we, we went, we made quite a tour also through your career, which started uh, quite a few decades ago by now, right? In this whole oh, business yeah. of addiction. So you are a dyed-in-the-wool neuroscientist and addiction researcher. So if you want to learn from, from your lessons, or want to learn from you and your experience, what would be uh, Marco's law we should adhere to to understand how the brain works? The brain works? Mm -hmm. Jesus, this is tough. You should help me. We give this question to everybody. Pull out the gun, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't consider myself. Your advice to other researchers. Your students, right? Your students. What's the rule you would give them? What's the codex that, that you would give? Give to your to your students to my students yes. to to keep going in neuroscience. Yes, the most important to ingredient to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, to make progress. Two things you need: you need a, an endless intellectual curiosity and enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. You don't need to be rich. You don't need to be nothing. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be smart. The brain is mm -hmm. a smart organ. The brain, if you make it working, it will work. And the more you make it working, and he enjoys that. This is called enthusiasm, mm -hmm. I would say. I, I try to transmit this mm -hmm. to the youngsters. Right. Curiosity and enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Curiosity could be an elixir of long life, you know. Because I think we begin declining when we say, oh, I know that already, mm -hmm. when, when you believe that you have learned whatever right. possible to be learned. So How it's you, nice mm -hmm. to think, no, I didn't learn mm -hmm. everything, otherwise I'll be dead. So how do you protect then your own curiosity and enthusiasm? How do you protect it? <clears throat> With TMS, doing something new, <laughs> moving from physiology mm -hmm. in rodents okay. to physiology in humans. Mm -hmm. So novelty, right? Novelty seeker, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but then, then the last question is that, so Tony still wants to go to uh, Sassari, he hasn't been yeah. there yet. 
He hasn't been in Sardinia a lot anyway, right? Uh, what? Just once. Okay. So four years from now, he comes. Tony will come visit your lab. Oh, sure. With a little notebook <laughs> okay. to check whether you actually have falsified your core hypothesis that you're going to share with us today. So what's the what's the key hypothesis you want to see tested in the four-year time frame in your program? You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to develop a way to measure or to estimate dopamine in the human brain living in the living human brain, which will not be PET scanning, nor will it be functional magnetic resonance. But, <clears throat> because I don't have those opportunities, it's not that I don't want. But, we are pursuing the electroretinogram, it's called. Mm -hmm. There is dopamine also in the retina as there are D1 receptors, and there are studies which have indicated that the blue cone wave apparently is not mediated by dopamine, by dopamine contributes to this. And this has been seen in cocaine addicts and it correlates with the dopamine metabolites in the CSF, so perhaps with the Electroretinogram, which is a very simple thing to do. In four years, I might have some results for Tom if he comes, and mm -hmm. and if you come too. Wonderful. So but if for you, it, it is much easier with a Sardinian wine, of course. So, Marco Diana, thank you very much for this. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.